Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Wednesday on the Three Martini Lunch, and we're not fooling anybody today. We're just glad March is over. Jim, I'm usually sad to see March end because it means most of the NCAA tournament is over, uh, but it does mean the Masters is usually on the way. Neither of those, of course, are happening. We found out today that even Wimbledon in July is canceled for this year. The Olympics were already postponed from July and August to next year. So we're not going to have a normal year at all. And we'll get more into that in the bad martini. But let's start with our good martini because it's really important to focus on the good news, not only for morale, but just to uh, explain that there is progress being made in this fight. Uh, This is from NPR. Three major health insurance providers have now pledged to shield patients from high medical bills if they need treatment for COVID-19. Insurers Cigna and Humana announced Monday that they would waive consumer costs associated with COVID-19 treatment. And last week, CVS Health announced a more limited change that Aetna would waive costs to patients for hospital admissions related to the coronavirus. All three insurers have now pledged to waive the patient's portion of a medical bill, what's called a patient's cost sharing. That means if your plan qualifies, you won't have to pay your full deductible before insurance will take over, which is a big deal because uh, deductibles are a lot higher than they used to be, obviously, or uh, have to pay the usual fixed amount for a medical service or treatment, otherwise known as the copay, or a percentage of the total bill, which is known as coinsurance. So, Jim, uh, right now a lot of these uh, offers are up to early June, but uh, my guess would be that they'll go longer if they need to. And obviously, not making folks pay their full deductibles means these insurance companies take a hit, but like a lot of other folks in the private sector, they're stepping up when it matters most. Yeah, and I just, you know, I, I so it's the sort of thing where if health insurance companies weren't doing this, I think the stakes of what we're confronting would be the sort of thing where any horror story about a health insurance company hitting somebody with a giant bill for coronavirus treatment or in any way leaving people in the lurch when they need health insurance most and they've been paying their premiums and they've been paying their prices. And, you know, this is what we have insurance for. If health insurance companies screw over people now in a circumstance like this, the next time a Bernie Sanders type rises saying we need to get rid of private health insurance, they're going to get a lot of support. This is a time of testing for the health insurance industry. They've probably noticed that they are not the most popular industry in the whole wide world. I think you and I would agree that there's a, uh, uh, some unfair demonization that goes on for them. They love some people who kind of expect health insurance to cover every little thing. And that's not really the concept behind insurance. Insurance is supposed to be about risk mitigation. Not everybody is going to get hit by a bus every year. Therefore, they're not going to need that. So you can spread out the risk amongst lots of people and the health insurance company can stay in business. I'd like to see this from all of them. I realize you didn't see, you didn't mention Blue Cross Blue Shield. You didn't mention all of them. I think this would be a wise thing. Yeah, they're going to get hit. But you know what? This is, this is what those profits are for. This is why you guys have been able to operate you know, under normal circumstances. These are not normal circumstances. This is the time to bite the bullet and eat the costs on this because Americans are counting on you. And oh, by the way, they're not going to forget how you treat people during a time like this. So I applaud these companies, and I think it does also. Every, every good gesture that they make at times like this will help dispel the next time somebody comes along and says, this industry should not exist in the United States of America. Not only is it the right thing to do right now, uh, depending on how this election goes, if it goes uh, the way of uh, the Democrats, even though Joe Biden says he's staunchly against Medicare for all, you have to think if, if the insurance companies are seen as 
one of the bad guys in this whole drama that uh, the push for eliminating them would be quite a bit stronger if the Democrats do well. But that's a, a long way away. And uh, again, Biden has actually said he'd even veto that legislation. One other thing to jump in here, uh, Greg, to make a point that this could be the finest hour for America's health insurance companies. And Americans are getting to see what happens when you have single payer type systems in places like Spain and Italy. The short version is when the federal, when the central government agrees to pay all the health costs of all the citizens, lo and behold, you have a whole bunch of high costs. And the end result of those high costs is that the government is then looking for, okay, how can we cut costs? How can we manage these costs? Because we've already promised we're going to pay for all of this coverage for every single person in our society. It's a very noble thing to do. It's a very uh, feel-good thing to do, but then you have to figure out where the money is. We've talked about the need of higher taxes and things like that, but also it means your hospital system doesn't have a lot of excess capacity. It doesn't have a lot of stuff lying around being unused because it's seen as an unaffordable luxury when you have lots of people coming into your hospitals and going to see your doctors all the time because people know they're not paying for it. That was the trade-off that European countries made, that the government would pay for it. But what the government has, the government has. There is no other private company that can set up and be a challenger uh, to what the, the, the central government is offering in this. And that's why you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. If the government is the only show in town when it comes to providing health care, then when they run out of capacity, there's no place else to go. And that's the kind of problems they're seeing over in various European countries right now. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And as mentioned a little while ago, uh, Wimbledon canceled for 2021. The Olympics have been postponed. We have, uh, of course, the Masters with no makeup date being delayed. The U.S. Open was scheduled for June. This is the Golf U.S. Open. That's not going to happen then. No makeup date. In fact, Wingfoot, which is near New York City, is being used as a staging ground for COVID-19 response. In fact, right now, Jim, I think the only thing that's on as scheduled, although it'll be done by teleconference, is the NFL draft, which will probably have the greatest sports audience ever because it's literally the only sports activity uh, happening anytime soon. Although the NFL claims they're going to have, or at least they hope to, have full stadiums and uh, a regular season schedule this year. We'll see if that's the case. But the, the sobering news here from the head of the Centers for Disease Control, uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, is that this is going to be a two-year battle. Now, he doesn't say that we're going to have to shelter in place and social distance for two years, but fully dealing with COVID-19 is going to be a two-year deal. He says this virus is going to be with us. I'm hopeful that we'll get through this first wave and have some time to, to prepare for the second wave. I'm hopeful that the private sector and its ingenuity and working with the government, National Institutes of Health, will develop a vaccine that ultimately will change the impact of this virus but for the next 24 months, you know, we're all in this together. And the most important thing that we can do is twofold. The American public fully embracing the social distancing that we requested to protect the vulnerable. And secondly, to operationalize the bread and butter of public health, you know, early case identification, isolation, contact tracing, so that this outbreak does not get the upper hand as it already has in New York City, northern New Jersey, and now New Orleans. So, Jim, uh, we hope that we can get back to something close to normal soon. You were just griping yesterday about Ralph Northam and his June 10th lockdown deadline here, but things aren't going to be normal if they ever do get back to what we consider normal for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, you just kind of, you can kind of, you know, you can see the dominoes falling in your head that if Wimbledon isn't normal, well, it's probably not going to be safe to reopen baseball and uh, for for uh, that, which means the National Basketball Association and National Hockey League probably won't be restarting games, which puts the play, you know, will we have a champion this year? I think that's um, an open question at this point. 
the you know there are two separate issues. The first is when is it um, when are you able to get people together in a group? Never mind large groups of hundreds or thousands of people. Um, it's worth noting that uh, yesterday uh, uh, Joe Biden was being interviewed by Brian Williams. It's Greg, this situation is so serious and scary. I'm going to skip over the traditional jokes about Brian Williams. <laughs> and um, they asked Biden about the Democratic National Convention in mid-July. And Biden said, I think quite reasonably, that uh, you know it may have to be different. He didn't propose any specific changes. He didn't say it should be canceled. Obviously, they need to have some sort of formal declaration uh, that, that Biden will be the nominee. I, I suppose you could have the delegates all announcing from remote locations or over the internet or something like that, but it's probably not going to go on as planned, and that's mid-July. So now the question is, when can you gather uh, groups of people to participate in some sort of big consequential event? I think you and I had discussed earlier that the PGA Tour might have the easiest time of this. You don't allow any spectators, and you just have the golfers maintain social distancing, and they probably could get events going at some point. Again, the masters are pushed back. I think this is still open question for a lot of people. But, uh, you know, this, this you know, midsummer is now suddenly looking like the earliest possibility of normalcy. And when you look at that, I think the idea of football stadiums full of, you know, tens of thousands of people suddenly don't look uh, all that well. If you're wondering, you know, what do we have to do to reach the point where like, okay, well, when is it okay to get together in a crowd? Well, you know, at this point, the, the health experts say the, the chances of you in getting it from a stranger, herd immunity kicks in when you've got 60 to 80 percent of the popular of the people are resistant to COVID-19. And that means that they either they, you know, that they don't they've had it and they, they've built up an immunity to it. We are a well a ways from there. Now, obviously, we don't because of widespread testing, we don't know exactly what percentage of the population has it. Um, but at this point, it feels like we can't have crowds at sports events or concerts or festivals, or for that matter, political rallies or campaign events anytime soon, probably not summer, maybe for fall. Now, look, we could have a miraculous development in terms of a vaccine or something like that. But again, even if they discover it, they got to manufacture it in large doses and they got to get it out to people in large doses. And that usually takes a considerable amount of time. So the overall sense of this is like, look, no one wants to think about the idea of the entirety of 2020 being written off um, with no sports champions and uh, all of our movies released directly on streaming. And, and, you know, just the idea that the entire year has been, has to be crossed off and canceled and postponed. But uh, there is no quick solution to this. And we're not going to go back to what we consider to be normal life for quite some time. Jim, what do you make of the ideas that some of these sports leagues, uh, I think the NBA was uh, kicking around, taking over Vegas since it's a ghost town at this point and basically quarantining the entire league so you can at least uh, play the games and possibly get them on TV. And some folks have already talked about uh, getting the NFL to do the same thing if necessary in the fall. Is that pie in the sky or do you think that's actually being seriously considered? I'm just trying to get my head around the logistics of this, uh, Greg, for starters. So the first is let's assume you get everybody there. Again, the first signal that this was really out of the ordinary came when an NBA player tested positive and the NBA suspended the season. So are, how certain are they? You'd, you'd need enough tests to make sure that everyone involved in the, you know, both every player in the league and every coach, trainer, all the necessary support personnel, et cetera, was able, you know, was clear. And I guess you know, once you have all those people and everybody's proven to be you know, coronavirus free, then I suppose you could have them. Do you just play one game after another? in one arena over and over again to, you know, like, cause I, you couldn't have, you know, you wouldn't be able to play this in arenas all across the country. 
I mean, Greg, I'm trying to think through it. So there are 32 NFL teams. So each week when nobody has a bye week, you've got 16 games, right? Yes. You would have to play. Each game is about three hours. Right. So doing the math in my head, that is like 58 hours of football play. 48, yeah. 32 times uh, three. Uh, 16, Sorry, 16 times three. 16 times three, yes. Yeah. This is what happened. This is the excitement <laughs> of the April. This is not an April Fool's Day joke. This is just how Jim and Greg are. Interrupting the podcast to figure out how long it would take to play a week's worth of NFL games at one site, presumably with no crowd, you know, and still being able to do it on television. Right. I mean, the, the television ratings would be monster. But I, I guess you'd have to do like a game every, like several games every day. Yeah. The NFL season, which has fewer. The NBA and NHL, like, there's no way to, you know, to make up all the games you've missed, I don't think. And I don't think you'd be able to do it for baseball. Um, I mean, just the sheer scale of this, of, of putting your head around this is kind of difficult. Um, I, I suppose they could, but this is going to be a, a phenomenal logistical challenge that makes little things like when the, the Vikings had to play in a different stadium because the roof fell in and the uh, Saints, did the Saints play, the Saints played in like San Antonio or something, right? They did after Katrina, right? Yeah. You know, those, those look like, you know, small bumps in the road compared to what the NF, what any sports league would have to do in a situation like this. All right. Well, that's obviously not our greatest concern, but it would be nice to have something to focus on while we ride this out. Uh, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this is maddening in addition to crazy. Uh, a lot of folks, especially if you spend a lot of time on social media, have probably seen uh, this clip with an interviewer from RTHK in Hong Kong with Dr. Bruce Aylward. He's a Canadian doctor who is part of the World Health Organization delegation to Wuhan to observe and probably advise on, on how to deal with the coronavirus outbreak. And so in this interview, two clips here, uh, first of all, the interviewer asks him about Taiwan. And first he claims he didn't hear the question, but then asks her to go to the next one. <laughs> And then when she asked the same question again, he, well, you can hear what he does. Listen. Would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? Hello? Would the, would the, sorry, I can't hear you. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let me, let me repeat the question. No, so, that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right. Because, because I'm, I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well, on Taiwan's case. Okay, so he hung up, and then she calls him back, and so then she tries to ask him the question again, and it goes like this. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've already talked about China, and um, you know, when you look across all the different areas of, uh, of China, they've actually all done quite a good job. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting us to participate, and uh, and good luck as you go forward with the battle in Hong Kong. So, Jim, clearly the World Health Organization doesn't want to admit that Taiwan exists. And that's especially consequential right now because Taiwan happens to be doing a really, really good job in mitigating the coronavirus. You talk about this in the morning jolt. Uh, the Taiwanese, as soon as they knew they had pretty much a case, uh, immediately swung into action on February 2nd, mobilizing their armed forces to assist in the production of medical equipment. Uh, you say they were pretty much doing everything from the word go that we're kind of scrambling to do now. But Taiwan, out of 24 million people, has 329 confirmed cases as of this morning. But we're not allowed to uh, go into detail about what they're doing because we're supposed to pretend they don't exist to make the Chinese happy. Yeah. I, look, this, uh, there are a lot of things that are deeply frustrating about um, how the world has responded to the coronavirus. I still think China is not getting nearly enough 
uh, public criticism and blame. I, I, you know, there's a lot of people, since I started starting writing about this, people have said to me, Jim, is it possible that people in official authority are taking it easy on China because their countries are still dependent upon China for things like the ingredients that they put into pharmaceuticals and you know, medicine and things like that? Um, and and that's, I suppose that could be the case. Obviously, that means you've got to get not dependent on China as soon as possible because otherwise you're kind of aiding, like you, you, I, it, it is, it's one thing to kind of avert your eyes from the arsonist who set your house on fire because he brought a garden hose afterwards to say, see, I want to help, you know. It is another thing to go along with it and to pretend the arsonist did not set the house on fire and that the arsonist is genuinely helping. Um, so I decided to look at, you know, there's, there's this popular narrative going around that, you know, that a lot of people don't like Trump for, for reasons both good and bad. And, you know, the argument, oh, America's failing in the coronavirus. Well, okay, yeah, I, I'm not going to dispute that our government response could have been considerably better and should have been considerably better. I also would note, though, you look at all around the world, whether it's Italy, whether it's Spain, whether it's the UK, France, a lot of other countries with governments, with leaders who are very different from Donald Trump are having a similar hard time getting their heads around it. And the, our, the other common argument you see, like, well, look, the Asian countries are handling this much better than we are, even if they separate out for China because everyone knows they're lying about their numbers. And that is indeed the case. It is also, however, worth noting that most of these Asian countries have, first of all, They've dealt with SARS, they've dealt with H1N1, their governments and their populations are already predisposed to take any report of a viral outbreak very seriously. I do kind of wonder if their proximity to China and their experience in dealing with China made them just inherently skeptical the first couple of weeks when China was insisting this couldn't be spreading from person to person. Um, but I think a really important fact to keep in mind here is that countries like South Korea are just making steps that we in the United States probably would not be comfortable with. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, South Korea is doing a terrific job on testing. Kudos to them on that. Most of these Asian countries have been using masks to prevent the spread of germs for a long time. Kudos to them on that. But they've also more or less ended privacy, right? South Korean authorities are using security camera footage, your credit card records, GPS data from your cell phone, and your GPS data from your car navigation system to track every move of every person who's infected. And if you test positive, you are required to download an app on your phone that will track your movements and relay that information to authorities. I think a lot of Americans would, be, would resist having that kind of um, required information and having the gut, making sure that, you know, like we, we saw the uproar over the NSA being in our cell phones. The idea that the CDC would automatically be allowed to track everyone um, is kind of unnerving. Uh, I, I think most Americans would just, you know, even for the, even for disease mitigation purposes would have troubles with this. Um, also, there's simply a matter of size. South Korea, the best way to summarize it is that South Korea has the population of California and Ohio squeezed into a space that's about the size of Kentucky. Um, it's fewer people, fewer space to look at. It's just a simpler task. Um, but you look at similar numbers, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Again, massively invasive uh, policies regarding privacy, and generally they're keeping their numbers in better shape. But the, probably the one that I think you could argue has handled this best is Taiwan. Now, the World Health Organization like, won't, doesn't recognize Taiwan as a member. Right? They are blocked from being a member because of China. People say, well, what's Taiwan doing that, that, you know, that's so great that the rest of us are, aren't doing? It's not a lot that's different in terms of policy, although, again, they are doing the quarantine, phone tracking, and things like that, but they just did everything really, really early, okay? Literally, Taiwan was tracking visitors from China last year. Okay, it was December 31st, but technically, you know, before January, right? Their first reported case was January 20th, and that was the fourth earliest amongst everybody in the world. 
Um, they banned the export of their masks on January 24th. They mobilized their armed forces to assist in the production of medical equipment February 2nd. Um, they were doing everything we are scrambling to do right now. They were doing very, very early. And that's one of the reasons they got, as of when I wrote this this morning, 329 cases out of 24 million people. And we considering how their proximity to China and how many people, but a lot of people don't know this, because Taiwan and China are enemies, there's this, this feeling that some people think they don't interact at all. Actually, they interact quite a bit in terms of uh, both you know, personal travel, families and stuff like that, business ties, uh, things that, you know, uh, products for the Taiwanese market are made in mainland China. You know, even though obviously the governments can't stand each other, the two peoples interact with each other quite a bit, or they did before this. So to be able to keep the infection rate this low and with this kind of, that size of a population that close to China is really, really impressive. And you could even say this is a role model for the rest of the world. But because so many people are afraid of China, we're not allowed to even just really discuss it all that openly. And I think that's like, this, this crisis is going to be much, much worse than it had to be because of politics and because of people's fear of crossing the government of, of China. The good news here is we're out of March, and I'll take that for right now. Yes. You know. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we'll see you tomorrow. Happy Wednesday. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Leave us a very nice review, five stars if you please. And also remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.